CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Wednesday, March 18th. And yesterday, as we discussed on my show with Dan Tapiero, was a huge day in terms of government announcing stimulus. President Trump and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin basically said that they wanted to go big. And that meant huge amounts of direct intervention in terms of both saving businesses as well as in terms of getting money into the hands of regular people. Now, this has had a fascinating effect of blurring previously unholy alliances when it comes to political positions. There has been huge blowbacks in terms of the idea of bailing out companies that spent a huge amount of their cash over the last few years on corporate buybacks. And for a lot of Bitcoiners, this validates a prophecy that when times got tough, we were going to turn to the government money printing machine to hopefully help. Now, there are a huge variety of perspectives on what the government should be doing and how. But on this show, I wanted to have a conversation that wasn't just about the hot takes on that, although there's plenty of that in the next coming few minutes but also about what alternatives are. I asked Bruce Fenton to join as someone who has been both sounding the alarm on coronavirus for a while, as well as someone who is taking action through open source networks to address specific problems in the larger context. In his non-corona life, Bruce is the CEO of Chainstone Labs. He's the founder of the Satoshi Roundtable. But in his corona life, he is leading the ventilator subgroup of the ncoronavirus.org organization, which is an effort of the New England Complex Systems Institute. So an open source network of scientists and thinkers and lots of different folks from lots of different walks of life. This conversation is about a few things. First, we do discuss a voluntarist alternative to government intervention. Second, we talk about just where in our awareness cycle we are and what we might be able to expect next. Third, though, we talk about this work around ventilators and trying to address a potential and likely shortage of ventilators that will be needed to actually address the health side of this dynamic. Bruce makes a pretty impassioned case for how open source networks can address this type of challenge. And when I ask him at the end of the interview where in his pessimist or optimist cycle he is, the optimistic side of him is that these types of open source networks might have 
a more privileged, important place in the society and the economy that comes out with us on the other side. As usual, we've only edited this podcast very slightly, and so I hope you enjoy. All right, we are here with Bruce Fenton. Bruce, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. So as we were just talking about, you know, I, I'm trying to kind of use the show to look at the uh, obviously the economic impacts of coronavirus, uh, you know, not just in the context of Bitcoin, but more broadly as well, but also just try to keep abreast of the, the situation as it is moving, right? Because we're dealing with a situation or a, a crisis that is a health crisis, a financial markets crisis, and a real lived economic crisis all at the same time, which is part of what makes it so challenging and increasingly a, a foreign policy crisis, I think, too. So where I wanted to start is you were one of the voices, you know, leading the crypto community earlier in saying that, hey, this is a real thing and you should be thinking about it. You should be paying attention to it and you should be preparing for it. How do you see where do you think we are uh, in general now in America in terms of that response and preparation? Well, I as I sort of feared, we tend to have an uh, overreaction a lot of times in America. Uh, I did see this coming. I saw it coming as a, as a crisis because the, the way that the virus works is that it tends to overload healthcare systems. And there's just, and, you know, the, the number of deaths, the number of severe cases, all of these kind of factors made me realize pretty early on that this isn't something people are just going to let continue. There's no way people are going to have cities uh, you know, hospitals in their cities that are that are collapsing, doctors getting sick, loved ones getting sick without, um, you know, really demanding, you, you know, the kind of uh, widespread actions that we've just seen recently. Um, so unfortunately, I, I'm afraid now that the government is probably in a in a position where they're overreacting, and that can cause uh, even worse problems than than the virus itself. So we really want to be careful about that. But, you know, clearly everybody knows it's serious now for whatever reason, uh, whether they're concerned about government or concerned about the health or concerned about the economy or or all of the above. Like you said, you know, there's, um, there's now uh, increasing foreign policy issues and other things. So it is very serious and it's unfortunate uh, to be sure for a lot of people. So uh, when you say that you think now the government is overreacting, in which context specifically? Well, mostly with the um, radical printing of new money. I, I kind of saw that coming. I think two weeks ago, I predicted $100 billion, uh, and a lot of people thought I was nuts. They said, $100 billion? You know, that's crazy. Yeah, and, and, and I, that's crazy. That's crazy. That's never going to be enough. <laughs> right, well, yeah, right around, right around then, I, yeah. said, I said, well, I predict $100 billion in a month. I predict a trillion in the yeah. year. Well, now we're past, we're at something like three trillion already, two, two and a half. I mean, they're, they're talking about another two and a half. Uh, Fed has, do, has said that they're going to do 500 billion in repos a day. Um, you know, they basically already printed, uh, you know, something like 10 times the equivalent of the total market cap of all cryptocurrencies, you know, so it's really radical. And, you know, as I said a few times lately, um, bad economics don't make a problem better. You know, bad economics don't make a problem better. It's it's like it's like somebody losing their job and saying, "Well, I'm all right. I lost my job. I have no choice but to go uh, do some online poker." No, that's a bad decision. It's a bad decision before you lose your job. It's a worse decision after you lose your job. Things like UBI and all these corporate bailouts and printing new money 
It's bad economics. We need a strong dollar more than anything right now. We need it more than ever. We need strong economics, good economic policy. And I'm afraid that, you know, maybe your listeners will listen to me, but I think people will ignore me even more than, than when I was uh, claiming uh, warnings about the, the COVID virus uh, uh, crisis. I was worried about this. And, you know, some people listen to me, but, I, you know, I don't think any, I don't think I have any hope of getting, you know, the real decision makers to listen to me on on sound economic policy because they didn't understand economics before the crisis. And now they're scared. So they're going to be doing uh, even worse things. So I am worried about the economics for sure. This feels in some ways inevitable. It's just kind of the end conclusion of the nature of politics right now. And it's 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 interesting because there is total across the board consensus, so much so that uh, it's now almost a competition of who's ver- who gets to claim credit for it from the political scorecard perspective. You know, like that—that's what I—I've I, been noticing. Yeah, we've now. Got, I mean, I the White House and and Romney supporting it with right along with AOC. It's it's uh, it's crazy land. Yeah, yeah. It, it it's interesting. I mean, I you know the 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 best hope is that. There's some amount of interesting conversation, at least that arises from it, that we kind of a- a- advance. But you know, I, I don't think that I don't think that there are most people who think that there's any uh, any any reality other than and then something like this through, especially because of the impact on. Uh, well, I think two things. One, politicians are seeing that they feel like they have to not allow these companies to fail. And they also watched the the way that the 20, 2008 bailouts created the entire kind of political context that they're operating in, you know, from from uh, from uh, Occupy Wall Street to, you know, to Trump, to you name it. And, uh, and they're just, there's no way that they can bail out businesses without feeling like they're doing something that they can claim as a bailout of, of Main Street as well. Right. Right. Exactly. And, um, you know, we did create this moral hazard in 2008 and other times where we said, hey, if you're in trouble, the government will come and save you. And I knew I knew they, the government was going to come save. And even as a um, you know, free, free market economist type of person who is very against these, I was never in favor of it. But in the darkest days, you know, a week ago or so, I, I was, you know, there was some little piece saying, you know, maybe, maybe the government, you know, could could help. That's sort of the bargaining stage of grief. And, and you know, fortunately for me, I understand economics, so I never actually embraced those ideas. But a lot of people just don't get the economics. So in times of fear, they they, they just scream, you know, do something, do something. And, uh, you know, the politicians right along with the, the the companies and the citizens all think that these, you know, bailouts, you know, wh- where did it, wh- anyone ever get the idea that we should be doing a bailout, you know, to say, well, uh, you know, Boeing's in trouble, we need to help them. Why? Why do we need to help them? And if you do need to help them, is giving them money a good idea? Why not? Why not go if you really, I mean, it would, I still wouldn't probably support this, but if the government um, really wanted to help the, the the a better way to do it would be to uh, increase purchases just just go and start buying things um, and then you then you get the wheels of the economy greased but to just give money away to either companies or even individuals is just it's just uh, unfortunately bad economics so I think that uh, there's a lot of folks who are against 
uh, bailouts for corporates, but who are more open to the idea of temporary economic relief, right? Like the, w- there's there's a couple different problems uh, for folks that are nervous about this. One is how uh, is is the possibility of temporary economic relief uh, in the form of direct checks to Americans becoming permanent expectation? But the, the the second question, I guess, is just what is what's the right approach to you know potentially twenty percent unemployment uh, almost overnight, if not something like that? You know, what, what's the ca- what are the counter policy that that are just not being discussed because we've gone so quickly to this sort of direct intervention model. Right. Well, there's uh, Thomas Sowell said the you know who's a great economist for those who don't know him. Um, he said there's no there's no good solu- something like um, no good solutions. There's only uh, trade offs, and so there is certainly I have no magical answer, but I do know that better economic policies would make sense, and that it sounds cruel. Uh, to say the government shouldn't do anything um, because people say, well, you know, hey, well, how do people pay their rents and so on? But giving everybody $1,000 actually makes everybody $1,000 poorer because we're, we're taking that in aggregate from everybody else. So the, so the country is, is basically $1,000 poorer per person and uh, we're weakening our economy. So we're, we're making bad economic uh, trade-offs and co- sort of a shell game to put imaginary money from here to here sort of makes you feel good a little bit. And if you're on the lower end, certainly paycheck to paycheck, you know, you're working a, as a busboy in a, in a restaurant and your, your wages just went from 15 bucks an hour to zero. Yeah, of course, it seems like it hurts you, but um, we have to think longer term than that. You, you know, it doesn't help you because it gives less of a chance of the restaurant becoming able to rebound. It becomes more of a chance of people trying to extend these things. Uh, you know, just very, very bad economics. So the way that economics are supposed to work, and it does sound cruel because, like I say, there's, it's all trade-offs. There's no great solution. But the way that economics are supposed to work in times like this is that it it trickles down and up from, from the individuals. So the individuals say, you know, hey, landlord, I uh, don't know if you've seen the news, but we're in a little bit of a mess here. And I'm not able to pay my rent this month. And the landlord says, I kick you out? No, not, not likely. Most landlords would say, oh, man, I know. And the, the building, uh, you know, there's 80 other people in the building like you. And the building manager's on my case about it because I'm not giving him the money that we were supposed to. And then the building manager goes to the bank and says, hey, bank, uh, you know, we're not paying our mortgage this month. And, and in the old days, the bank would say, all right, I got you. This, this is a problem. We get it. We're going to add those payments on. We're going to give you three months off. You add those payments on the end. And everybody works it out in voluntary agreement. The landlords, the tenants, the bank, the the, the workers. Um, that's the way that these things uh, work. And those are fairer ways because there's more people with skin in the game. There's more people making trade-offs. It's more voluntary agreements. Those agreements can be one-offs rather than just blanket statements. You know, wealthy people don't need the $1,000. Um you know, I'm fortunate enough that I don't have, I'm not facing an issue with, with my immediate rent in my house. So I wouldn't, I'm going to continue to pay my rent. I'm going to continue to pay my employees uh, for as long as I'm able to. Um, so, so that can, that kind of socializes the risk a little bit more. You know, I, I'm going to my landlords, you know, I have a lot of, uh, you know, between businesses and stuff, I have a few different landlords I deal with. Uh, I'm going to go and say, Hey, you know, I get the times are tough. I'm going to keep paying kind of thing. 
You know what I'm saying? It should be negotiated out by people. And that goes for work and everything else. And what government should do is really get out of the way of anybody who needs to make money doing anything. Anything that doesn't harm others or, or violate others' rights, we should get out of the way. So if we're telling people they can't go to work at their restaurant, we should we should have you know no rules about you know can they deliver food from there you know can they make a can they make a meal outside somebody's door and you know go to a large apartment and set up a table and and do a food truck whatever anything that people can do to make a living government's got to get the heck out of the way because those people need jobs and the more people that do it who are providing goods and services that people want that's what's going to make the economy healthy and that's what's going to rebuild us yeah, I would say that that some of the most encouraging actions have been those restriction loosenings, you know, in terms of which restaurants can deliver and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, from a free market standpoint, you know, there there's probably not a lot of silver linings to this. But one hopeful benefit that comes out of it is that they tear down some of the you know, dumb laws that make it so, you know, there's just so many different things, you know, oh, you can't deliver milk unless you have a milk license and you got to do this separate. And, you you know, a lot of those things are coming down. And, and you know, you see some of the announcements and they're sort of almost silly. You're, you see these regulations like, you know, here now a month into this crisis, the FDA and its, and its benevolence is finally allowing state health boards to administer tests. I mean, come on. What the, the state health board isn't allowed to wasn't allowed to deliver, a, you know, administer a test? That's crazy. Your local doctor should be able to give a test. In fact, your 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 crazy cousin who's a chemist should be able to give a test and you and it should be your judgment whether you trust that test or not. But to have, you know, even state health boards and even major, you know, these are major hospitals we're talking about. Huge, huge medical systems with with thousands of doctors not allowed to give tests until you know, supposedly yesterday, but we've heard that a couple times, you know, so even the most basic and obvious kind of uh, restrictions, when you have just piles and piles and piles of laws, uh, it really becomes obvious now because you have lives at stake and things that, you know, all these zoning boards and just so many things that are bottlenecks in the way that the world works. It's, It's one thing if you're a, you know, millionaire landlord fighting with a zoning board for six months because you wanna, you know, add an extra toilet it's another thing entirely if you need that extra toilet because somebody is in need and they desperately need an apartment. So I think people aren't going to have much tolerance for these kind of rules. And hopefully, you know, even the citizens, uh, you know, even the, the people in government generally, hopefully will kind of move towards those solutions and, and look for ways to help people rather than get in the way. There is a couple percent of people who are bad apples and and who really want authoritarianism and they want to use this as an opportunity for that. So you really got to watch out for those people. I mean, I think this is one of the most challenging things for me with this is uh, is figuring out where in the cycle of the conversation we are and being able to try to get people to have all the conversations at once, right? To kind of sift through their own fear and their, their, their feel, uh, feeling of playing catch up with their own fear to also still have a conversation about uh, what the right kind of limits of, uh, of government intervention are. Let's hold aside the... Uh, the uh, any any sort of monetary intervention for just a second. The there is obviously a a glowing global uh, growing global trend of 
using data to track citizens under the guise of kind of health uh, results, right? I, I think right. Israel today just signed a law uh, allowing them to do this officially. Meanwhile, you've got bills around uh, ending encryption that are kind of, you know, this is being jammed through in, in Congress right now. And it's difficult to get, I mean, basically, this is a, a, a classic historical challenge, but the crisis times are when uh, creeping authoritarianism happens. And this is not a, uh, you know, I, I am not a chicken little sky is falling type. It's more just about like, can we have the consciousness and the compartmentalization almost to have, uh, to uh, to defray almost our um uh, our, our general kind of philosophical opinions and look at the nuance of the situation and say, this is a thing we're okay with the government doing. This is, is not, and this is a line. And we can have that conversation without it being, uh, you know, uh, about just the standard, you know, political rancor. Absolutely. Absolutely. And really looking at what ideas are good ideas or bad ideas. And unfortunately, so few people, we knew this for years and years going back, very few people understand economics. They don't understand how money works, where it comes from. Uh, they don't understand the principles or properties of money. They don't really understand economics. I mean, people don't even understand the stock market. I mean, um, AOC clearly many, many, many times it, as indicated, she just does not understand the stock market or how business works pretty much any better than any of you know her counterparts. Why would she? She doesn't have a background in it. She never worked in it. She cer you certainly don't learn it automatically by becoming a member of Congress. They don't give you some briefing. I wish they, I, w I wish I could give those briefings, you know, even 10 hours would be better than zero hours. Um, and I'm not trying to pick on her particularly. It is a time for us to all come together, but there are just bad economic policies and people who just don't get it, um, who are pushing, pushing for these, for these things because they just don't know better. They, their heart might be in the right place. Um, I followed a lot of doctors and a lot of, uh, you know, medical experts uh, going back about six weeks, and I still continue to follow them. And a lot of them are liberal leaning, and they don't know anything about economics. So, so the same people who are saying we've got to, you know, test and know what we're dealing with, we've got to do this, we've got to do this, we got to take this virus seriously. They're they're now saying we've got to do this uh, stimulus, and I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, you know, uh, hold on, you're you're a doctor, you you probably don't know much about this, and uh, you know, same thing they said about me a month ago about the virus. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, sound economic principles make sense and it's unfortunate people just don't know those. So I, I think you're going to have a lot of mania and rushing into things and, you know, thinking about how, uh, you know, how things will work. Elizabeth Warren had a multi-point, uh, memo about what she would require if companies get bailout. And, and for one thing, they shouldn't even be getting the bailout, but even if you did, it's a bad idea to give the bailout, but then she adds all these restrictions. You know, you must have this minimum wage and you must do this and uh, managers are required to, by law to do this or they can go to jail and blah, blah, blah. Uh, that means that you're going to have a nanny state micromanaging. The, 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 so you have bad decision given to generally bad businesses because these are typically businesses who squandered their cash on, buy, on buybacks. So you, you're, you're taking our money in a bad economic decision, giving it to bad businesses and then saddling them with bad management ideas uh, on top of that. It's just a pure recipe for failure, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, buybacks, by the way, I, I are absolutely going to be this crisis 
uh, too big to fail type of type of uh, uh, you know rallying cry. It, it's you're seeing it from everyone. I, I think uh, Vortex, for those of you who follow him on uh, on crypto Twitter, uh, retweeted AOC yesterday, and he said, "You want to know how crazy a time it is? I agree with AOC on something, and it was about buyback." So I think that's a one of the interesting dimensions of this conversation that are that that that's starting to come up now as well. But um, Bruce, so one of the things that I uh, that that you mentioned in terms of things that government can do is uh, is where it can reduce restrictions uh, in certain ways. And that, I think, is a, is a nice segue into the ventilator question. So you've kind of, it seems to me, transitioned from uh, signaling the warning signs to trying to more pursue, uh, precisely and kind of surgically go after problems that you're anticipating and that others are anticipating coming forward. Um, so tell me about the, the, the kind of ventilator project that uh, that that has seen kind of an explosion of interest over the last 24 hours or so. Yeah, that's exactly right. I did sort of shift, um, you know, a week ago or I don't know, probably just a few days. It seems like a week. Um, you know, they, they, there's no need to call alarm anymore. And there's a lot more qualified than me, people than me talking about the virus itself. I was talking about it really, really early. I, use, I, I put hashtag COVID-19 on my on my tweets because it was so rare. <laughs> you know, people were following that hashtag. Uh, a few of them in our community, Balaji, Ryan Selkis, and, and, and a few others. Um, but now everybody knows about it. Now that, you know, COVID-19 is not a topic anymore. It's just subtopics of the of the topic. And so I'm going to try, I'm going to probably talk about it less. Although I would, for those still following the virus itself, I would exercise a lot of caution. There's now a lot more um, people with a vested interest in shaping a narrative. So I don't really trust data anymore. Um, I was always skeptical of it, but you got to be even more skeptical now because there are people use, you know, using this as an opportunity to do bad things. Um, but I did try and figure out something I could do to help, which was looking at this vent ventilator issue. And, and I simultaneously heard two things. One is we need a lot more ventilators and the manufacturers aren't, aren't even really up to capacity. And two, uh, there are ways to make... Um, you know, ventilators from, uh, you, you know, you, you can kind of patch together solutions. There's open source ventilators. They've been used in other countries. There's a lot of doctors, even in modern hospitals, where they've doubled up ventilators. And there's stories of people making 3D parts and things like that. So I said, well, hey, there's something. I don't know anything about ventilators, um, but I do know about open source. And I know the power of open source. And I was already in this group, um, New England Complex Systems Institute, which is, a very decentralized, you know, it feels like a Bitcoin or an Ethereum project. It's just a whole bunch of people jumping in, doing their thing, and you get some real brilliant people, and they start their own teams and and that kind of thing. So, so, so I asked the head of that if if he, what he thought about the ventilators. He says, "Sure, go for it." You know, typical open source kind of decentralized fashion. Just you know, go go ahead, be a leader, and. Um, uh, so, so I wrote an article about it, and very, very quickly we got a lot of response, and which is great. It's great for me also because I'm really looking forward to kind of turning it over to other people. Not that I want to abdicate responsibility, but it's just I don't even know that much about ventilators. I just try and create an environment that people can, um, you know. I think I did have confidence enough in myself that I could that I know enough about open source from Bitcoin and other projects that I could foster an environment that helps with that. I've been out in Bitcoin saying, uh, 
you know, hey, be a leader. You don't, you know, that famous line Gavin Andreessen said, what, probably six years ago, hey, don't wait for permission, just go do it. Um, so I figure I could I could do that. And so far that's worked. And so, you know, I'm, I, I, we've got some really good team leaders and other people. There's some very experienced medical doctors and, uh, you know, credentialed people who've dealt with regulatory approvals and issues like that. There's practitioners, uh, designers, medical device people. So we've, we've developed a pretty good group of sub teams and people are able to volunteer and help in the way that they can. We have everything from, uh, you know, just people with a 3D printer at home who are saying, hey, I don't, I don't know anything about ventilators, but I can print a part if you want, uh, to people saying, you know, hey, I was uh, head FDA liaison for XYZ giant biomed company for years. I can I can tell you exactly what we need on the specs. We've got, doc- just today there was doctors giving um, spec saying, you know, here's what you need. Here's what it needs to basically be legal and safe. Um, and then we got lawyers working on, you know, going to FDA or other authorities in other countries. This is a global effort and saying, hey, we need emergency approval to do this. In practice, it really is driven by the medical professionals and the doctors, you know, pretty much doctors, one of one of the ER docs. And this is, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not this isn't legal advice. Uh, and it really depends on what country you are. But one of the ER docs said, hey, look, we're going to do what we do to save lives. Um, and we're going to we're going to use this. We're going to use what we need to use. And, and I think he's mainly talking about, you know, when they 3D manufacture a part or they jury rig two hoses together to make it serve two people instead of one people or one person. Um, you know, those kind of solutions are something that we're seeing right now. And hopefully a combination of all of this. Uh, and again, a, a main effort pressuring the regular uh, manufacturers, if we can help them get capacity up. And I've gone to several manufacturers and I say, hey, you know, you've got an opportunity now here that you have activists willing to help you. Is there any regulatory issue that you want torn down? Is there, you know, some, you know, 60 day waiting period requirement for a new factory certification, something like that, that we can get uh, torn down? Because if somebody is already a legal compliant manufacturer of ventilators, um, they're the best position. They're by far the best position to say, hey, you know, I've got this factory. I can I can now expand the factory. Maybe I maybe there's a factory down the street that makes, uh, you know, car hoses or car vacuums or something. And we can retool the vacuum factory to make ventilators because, you know, whatever, 50 percent of the equipment is the same. Um, so those are the kind of things we're working on. I, you know, I don't I don't know um, what results we'll have. I, it's it's certainly I'm optimistic based on the number and quality of people that have jumped into this and the, the publicity we've gotten so far. So uh, maybe that's just some little little piece that we can do. And there's a lot of interesting things like this that people can do on their own. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. You know, so basically you saw this scenario where uh, one of the particular acute likely issues is uh this particular medical uh part that was uh you know likely to to have a shortage and the response was uh kind of dealing 360 with it right like we've seen there, a news story blew up uh over the last couple of days about 3d printing but that doesn't take into account all of the regulatory issues all the legal issues all you know whatever all the patent issues like these things that uh are are not grinding to a halt even if it maybe feels like they should in some way and so you know your your approach was this open source network are there for people who are listening and who are like i, I want to be able to do more are there other issues like that 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 you know you haven't taken up because there's not enough time, or just places that they should be looking, or where they should be paying attention. 
I think, you know, one thing I was going to do, I should, I should probably go, I was going to do like a, a Q&A or an AMA or something. Just say, tell me your skills and I'll tell you how you can help. That's something I'm pretty good at. You know, I think anybody can help. I mean, if you're an, uh, an OPSEC uh, or InfoSec person, if you're a, if you're a um, you know, a pen tester, uh, you say, well, what can a pen tester do? Yeah, I tell you what you do. Go to your local hospital because they're getting attacked right now and figure out where they're vulnerable and, and don't make more work because they're all overwhelmed. But you can go in there, go ahead, do a free report for your local hospital or for, you know, any of these companies or groups that are getting hammered. You, you know, uh, you could and I can I can make an example like that for anybody, whether you're graphics design or or whatever. There's there's Fold app. Um, which is, uh, they're, they're the ones who did the SETI research, crunching data from SETI for years and years. You could do it on your home computer. Um, that enables you to take a GPU and crunch, I don't even know what kind, some kind of data that, that is apparently useful in the analysis of the virus that may help with, uh, you, you know, finding, um, you know, finding data that people need. So you can go ahead and turn it, turn on your computer and run, uh, you know, run it at home on a GPU. There's some things that are tied with a coin. I'm not really sure about that. I thought about that. That was something I was thinking about a, a couple of weeks ago. Like, hey, maybe you make a coin that does this. But um, for the coin to be any good at all, it, you know, useful proof of work doesn't really jive with, uh, you know, a proof of work algorithm that needs a coin to be strong. And also, you know, there's all the other issues that every altcoin has. You know, why do you need it? Is it worth anything? I thought of it more like a, you know, like a like a gold sticker, like hey, good job, you know, good job. I you know, sort of bragging rights, like hey, I got, I, I accumulated one hundred fifty thousand COVID fold app coins, which showed that I really put a lot of computer power. I don't think that would have economic value anyway. I didn't pursue that. If somebody wants to go for it, that would be a really, you know, I, I, I don't I don't know if it'd be a good coin at all. I, if I was going to write a white paper on that, I would caution that it, it's it's probably a horrible investment. But that's not the goal. The goal is just if you can incentivize people somehow to turn on their machine when they wouldn't have, you know, great. And if somebody's real smart out there, you have a lot of smart, you know, listeners, if they can tie it to Bitcoin or something like that, even better. I don't want to get too much into letting economics ride it because it's more like this is a problem we got to solve first. So I would encourage people just forget the coin part and just turn on your app. You don't need to have any coin affiliate. You just just do this folding app, use your GPUs uh, for free and don't get anything in return. But what you are doing is potentially helping uh, solve it. So there's a lot of things like that. You know, there's every kind of equipment there's shortage of. You know, there was I saw a video of a guy. He made his own mask manufacturer machine in his house. And apparently he could make like 100,000 masks in a weekend or something. He had this very fast spinning. You could probably find it very fast spinning kind of makeshift sewing machine thing and it would cut. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of interesting things people can do. And what I've seen with um, New England Complex Systems Institute, which is now over a thousand volunteers, not not just on the ventilator project, but across all, the, all kinds of projects, is that, um, you know, we know the power of open source, a lot of real smart people jumping in and they're all very motivated. And you have quality of people that just, you know, wouldn't wouldn't normally, you know, I mean, a lot of, I mean, I'm busy. I wouldn't, there's no way I would be jumping in doing free volunteer work for yet another organization. If you would have asked me a month ago, I get invited all the time to be on nice prestigious boards and things like that. I usually say no. Uh, but with this, I nobody even had to ask me. I just jumped in because I said, well, 
I got a couple slow weeks at work right now. I, I don't think a lot of people are beating down the door to, uh, you know, do our conventional services. And, and, and frankly, as a CEO, I've got to adjust for how we're, we're evolving anyway. So, yeah, I think there's a lot that a lot of people can do. So, Bruce, one one last question for you, I guess, that's a, a little bit zoom out. Where in the pessimism, optimism cycle are you now uh, today as we're recording this? Hmm. Tough to say. I, I, a little of both. I, you know, I want to be positive, but also realistic. You know, the realistic part is that we are in a real unprecedented economic mess. And the stoppage is going to cause things to grind to a halt, which may be hard to restart airlines, tourism, restaurants, you know, as you mentioned, these are 20% of our jobs. And that that's a big, big deal. And a lot of people I think are going to have a rude awakening to how the economy actually works. We need everybody. We need the, the people working as waiters and waitresses, because everything is helped by this overall economic movement. So I'm very uh, concerned about that. And that is very, um, you know, th- that creates a lot of pessimism. And I don't think the market's even reflected it yet. And I think that the bad decisions by ours and other governments to print new money is going to be economically disastrous, uh, maybe to the point where it's so bad it doesn't, you know, kind of everything suffers. You know, you, you know, there's, a, there's some argument you say, oh, this could be good for Bitcoin. Yeah, sort of. I hope so. Um, I actually bought some more Bitcoin today. But um it, it, when it's real, real, real bad, it's not good for anybody. I mean, nobody, nobody wants to be a Bitcoin holder if if half their city is out of work. I mean, look what happened to Detroit. You know, when things implode, it's bad. On the positive side, uh, you know, the, hopefully the you know people have so, sort of overreacted. You say, "Wow, there's this panic. It's bad," but but these things do pass. The Spanish flu passed. There's been quarantines of, of you know mass quarantines of people many times in history. I use the example of the Blitz in World War II, where um, you know two million people in in London lost their homes, or in the UK lost their homes. Uh, Forty thousand died, and uh, I think forty to a hundred thousand were injured. Uh, you know, you had these nine eleven scale bombings again and again and again. So people get through stuff, um, and typically when a war is over or a major crisis is over, the economy just booms. So we could we could be in a, for a great. Uh, decade. <laughs> we could be in for a great decade, a great decade where old broken systems and weak ideas and companies and economic plans and politicians are are uh, irrelevant and a new breed of smarter, um, more logical people and policies take place. Uh, businesses go back to the good old basics of providing goods and services that people want and maybe new new paradigms and new systems in Bitcoin and healthcare and decentralization and these kind of things, uh, you, you know, do well. That's my optimistic hope. Humans are strong. Humans are hard to kill. I, you know, somebody, I, I try and listen to everything, even conspiracy theorists who think the whole thing's fake. I think it's it's wise to listen to everybody um, because you want to have good data and there are people who will lie. And it does look, you know, to a conspiracy theorist, this looks a lot like a big giant psyop. I don't think so. Because for the simple reason that even if it was, whoever created it wouldn't be able to control it. Nobody can control or predict something this um, complex. So if it was some, you know, sinister plot, it would be kind of the equivalent of like, 
hey, I'm going to, you know, burn down my whole block because I want to burn one set of papers in one person's office. It wouldn't be a good plan. So in any event, I don't think, I don't, you know, again, I don't think that somebody created this or this was an intentional. I think a lot of the fuel behind it is, is people with bad motivations. But either way, it's out of their hands now. It's a big, complex thing, and it's in the world's hands. And the world, I think, may make a lot of mistakes, but generally we're going to gravitate towards what's true. We're going to find the truth in, in an age of internet. Even if there's censorship or stuff, we're going to figure out what's true, and we're going to figure out solutions to whatever it is. And then him, human ingenuity and good old-fashioned economic principles are going to come, come to the, the forefront. So, you know, hopefully the, the bad period that we're in isn't as bad as a lot of people are talking. People are already kind of saying, you know, a year. You know, hopefully we can keep this much shorter, get good diagnostics, um, you know, and, and keep this to a short period and then come out of this much, much stronger than ever. That's my hope. It's a hope I share. Well, thank you, Bruce, so much for taking a little time today. Uh, I know everyone who's listening appreciates it. And uh, we'll keep checking in with you as things progress. Thank you. And thanks for all you do. We've talked a lot about the Bitcoin price response to the coronavirus crisis. We've discussed it as recently as yesterday in the context of what this new era of helicopter money might mean for a non-debasable asset like Bitcoin. We talked about it last week with Preston Pish around the idea of a coming bond crisis and a currency crisis that might ensue. What we haven't talked about as much is the idea of a shift from centralized to decentralized systems more broadly. Times of crisis tend to lead to consolidation of power at the center. Yet at the same time, as we're seeing in America, the response has to be inherently decentralized and a cooperation between central actors and decentralized actors to make this work. The massive campaigns to get people to take individual voluntary action to support the health outcomes not just of themselves, but of those around them, is a great example of this. I don't know how this ends, but I do know that flexing and growing and developing this open source model and muscle feels important and relevant for the times that we'll face even once we've conquered the coronavirus or gotten it under control. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, guys. We will be back not tomorrow. Tomorrow we're off, but we'll be back on Friday for another episode of The Breakdown. Until then, peace.